Good morning, church family. My name is Dudu, and I'm part of uh, Christ Church Midrand family. And our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 5, to chapter 6, through to verse 9. Exodus, chapter 5, to chapter 6, through to verse 9. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people the straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the list. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather, to gather stubble for, for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the, sight, in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have, put us a, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of, this, out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dudu, for that Bible reading, and to David for that prayer a little bit earlier, to our music team for leading us um, so capably and um, so wonderfully in uh, praise and worship of our Lord. I want to join Rafa in expressing sadness to speaking to an empty auditorium. It is very strange. Um, it's unnatural, but we are thankful to the Lord uh, for the ability to reach into your home with the gospel this morning. And we do pray and hope and um, are fairly confident that, uh, God willing, this will be uh, just a brief interlude and that next week we will be gathering uh, together in flesh and blood once again. So please do be praying for that during the course of the week. And of course, we will update you uh, as to what the plans are as soon as possible, as soon as we have uh, some clarity. Won't you join me in another word of prayer just before we come to this text? Our Father, as always, we um, appeal to nothing but your mercy as we seek to approach you. Uh, we know that your mercy took on flesh and blood in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you through him and through him alone, not trusting in ourselves. Uh, Father, we pray that in the power of your spirit, you will bring us to yourself. You will reveal yourself to us. You will say what you have to say uh, through Exodus chapter 5 uh, in the power of your spirit this morning. Please speak to us. Please don't leave us as we are. Give us ears to hear and meet with us now, we pray. Amen. This morning we've reached a climax. Uh, Ever since the burning bush in Exodus 3, when God first told Moses to go to Pharaoh, we have been building towards this point. Now, finally, we've arrived. No more preparation, no more signs, no more excuses. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Moses confronts Pharaoh. And it's a complete anticlimax. Moses confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh says no. Moses asks again nicely. Pharaoh hammers Israel with hard labor because of his cheek. And that pretty much seems to be that. It's a damp squib of an ending. 
a complete flop. At least that's how I read it at first. But to read it that way is to misread it. Because as always in Exodus, as we've discovered week after week, there's a lot going on here. And it all orbits around Pharaoh's question in verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It's a good question for Pharaoh to ask. It's a good question for us to ask this morning. To fully understand it, let's have a closer look. The moment we do, we immediately see something strange happening at the beginning of this passage. Because Moses asks for essentially the same thing twice. He asks for the same thing twice in two very different ways. Now why would that be? Listen, just listen to what he asks and see if you can hear the differences. So chapter 5 verse 1, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh then asks his famous question, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him? Then verse 3, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three, day journeys into, three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Did you hear the differences there? Let me just highlight them for you. First, there's a difference in tone. In verse 1, the tone is direct and demanding. Let my people go. In verse 3, the tone is indirect and pleading. Please let us go. Second difference, the people. In verse 1, it is my people. In verse 3, it's the Hebrews. Third difference, the purpose. Verse 1, the purpose is to celebrate. Verse 3, the purpose is to sacrifice. Fourth difference, consequences. No consequences mentioned in verse 1 at all. But in verse 3, we must sacrifice lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Now there has to be more to these differences than Moses was scared so he backed down. If he was scared, he could have just walked out without saying anything else. And why these specific differences? Fear might explain the change in tone, but it can't explain the other differences. So what exactly was Moses saying? The key to the answer lies in the fifth difference. The difference which, as we will see, is also the answer to Pharaoh's question. The fifth difference is in the name of God. In verse 1, he is Yahweh. In verse 3, he is simply the God of the Hebrews. Now, if we run ahead to Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, also in our passage near the end, just before God is about to strike Egypt with ten plagues, this is what he says. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In these verses, God is telling Moses that through the events of the Exodus, he will reveal something new about himself. He waited for the events of the Exodus to reveal himself as Lord, 
and to reveal what that name actually means. Before that, he was known as God or God Almighty. So let's start there. The name we translate God, translated in our English Bibles as God, in the Hebrew is El or Elohim. It literally means power. El Shaddai is an intensive form of the same name. That means great power, extraordinary power, or God Almighty. But as we saw two weeks ago, this name, El, power, is an attribute rather than the essence of who God is in himself. It's an attribute rather than the essence. So Kate might be a Chelsea fanatic who named her cat Jose Mourinho, but her allegiance to Chelsea is not the essence of who she is. Kate, you watching? It's not the essence of who you are. It's merely an attribute. Power is an attribute. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There are no limits to his power, and yet it remains an attribute. It's not the essence of who he is. But the name Yahweh reveals the essence, the very essence of who God is. And you remember from two weeks ago that Yahweh is a combination in the Hebrew for I was, I am, and I will be. It's pointing to the God who is outside of space and time. The God who cannot be compared to created things simply because he is creator. He is above all creation. He is outside the system, so he cannot be named or defined by anything inside the system. He simply is. He is the creator of all. Now we have to compare that to how Pharaoh would have thought about deity. The Egyptian worldview was pagan. Paganism operates on what we might call a calculus of fear. That's its operating system, a calculus of fear. Just imagine primitive man exposed to all the forces of nature, drought, storm, disease, famine, earthquake. It's a precarious existence, an existence subject to all of those dangerous forces. Now the pagan man believed that behind each one of those dangerous forces, there was a pagan god, a god. So there was a god of the harvest, and a god of the sun, and a god of the river. Each god had power in their particular realm. The sun god wielded the power of the sun. The river god wielded the power of the waters. The harvest god wielded the power of a successful or a failed harvest. And because the power of every god was limited to their domain, these gods were per definition limited in their power. No single god had the upper hand. And so there was, naturally, a constant contest for power. The gods were in a constant power struggle with each other, which is how the pagan worldview, the pagan mindset, explained all the chaos in the natural world. It was a power struggle amongst the gods. They saw the material universe as eternal and this soap opera playing out amongst the gods that happened in the heavens and had implications for life on this eternal material universe. 
All that is how Pharaoh would have viewed the world. That's how any average pagan would have viewed his world. So if you are Joe Pagan, and you don't want bad things to happen to you, and you want to have some control over your life, what do you do? Step one, you pick a God. If you're a Philistine living on the coastlands of the Mediterranean, and uh, you, your livelihood is involved in fishing, bound up in fishing, well then you might pick Dagon, the fish god. Once you've looked around and uh, you've gotten a real sense of your circumstances and your needs, and you've looked at the catalogue of gods and you've made your choice, you've picked a god, well what next? Step two, you come to a mutually beneficial arrangement. You would never say it out loud, but you want to manipulate your God. And so you offer sacrifices to meet the needs of your God. And the more outrageous the sacrifice, the more leverage you have over your God. Incidentally, that's why child sacrifice was so popular in the ancient world. If you really need the harvest to come through, you offer the first fruit of your own womb. During a drought, nothing says, we are sorry, we are with you, you have our vote, please send the rain, like sacrificing your own child to prove it. That's paganism. That's where Pharaoh was coming from. These poor, primitive people. How different are we? How much of a difference has 3,500 years of progress actually made? Well, let's have a look. We still believe that the material universe is eternal, that matter is eternal. We still worship local gods because we fear the chaos of this life. The only thing that's changed is the names, the names we give them. So we've, we've switched Dagon for a god called Korea. But Korea is just like the gods of old. He promises material success in exchange for the sacrifice of your children. Or, of course, we could flip this thing on its head because we don't have to worship Korea. Remember, in paganism, you get to pick and choose. You can choose the God that meets your needs. So we might choose to worship children instead. And when our God is our children, what do we do? We run around at their beck and call, meeting their every whim. We sacrifice our marriages. We sacrifice any meaningful relationship outside of, the, outside of that confined family unit, all in the name of worshiping our God, children. Why do we do it? Well, because this world is scary and we think we can find safety and longevity in legacy, in the success of our children, in the shelter of love confined, narrowly confined to my family unit. Paganism is alive and well 3,500 years after Pharaoh. The calculus of fear still has an enormously strong hold on us. And I've just been describing the Western version of cultural paganism. 
I was, um, I've been teaching at Johannesburg Bible College, and just in the past couple of weeks, uh, the student body there are predominantly African people, and they've been sharing with me, really driving it home, just how strong the calculus of fear is in African traditional religions. But here's the thing. It's not just out there, whether on the Western view or on the African view. This cultural paganism is not just out there. How many of us who claim to be Christian are living as functional pagans? Claiming to worship Jesus, but worshiping the God of sex, the God of money, lifestyle, social status, reputation. Or the most popular God in the pagan pantheon, the God of self. Former Secretary General of the UN, Doug Hammarskjöld, was straightforward on this. This was his mantra. This is what he would tell everyone. You are your own God. He was advocating the new humanism. And this was his bumper sticker. You are your own God. Fancy new names, same old paganism. Is that you? If it is, please don't stop listening because our passage is going to show us a better way. It's going to show us a better way to live. And that better way comes to us in the form of monotheism. It comes to us in the name of Yahweh. Paganism runs off the calculus of fear. Monotheism runs off a separate calculus entirely. Think with me. If there is just one creator God, and of course that's the essence of monotheism, the idea that there is one absolutely sovereign creator God who made the world and rules it. If there is just one creator God who created everything and rules over everything without any rival, how would that change the motives for worship? So we've just been exploring the calculus of fear and our motives for worship under the calculus of fear. But if there is just one God, one creator God who made everything and rules everything, how does that change our motives for worship? Why would we worship this God? Because remember, he has no needs. You can't give him anything that isn't already his. And that means you can't manipulate him. You can't get any leverage over him. So why on earth would you worship him? It's an awkward question, isn't it? For many of us who think of worship as building up credits with God that, be, that can be cashed in for blessings, either in this life or the next life. But why worship God if you can't manipulate him in that way? Or in any way? Let's take it further. If there is one creator God, then you are not the product of a blind eternal universe or some petty squabble between the gods. If there is one creator God, you are the expression of the will 
of that one creator God. He thought the world would not be complete without you. He wanted you to exist. Are new motives for worship starting to surface in your heart and in your mind? I hope so. We might start with obedience. If this God made the whole system, then he understands how the system works. And he should be the one who makes the rules for life within this system called creation. We might worship out of a desire to obey the one who should be obeyed. Or what about gratitude? If he made it all, then everything we have, everything we have is a gift from him. The very breath that you are drawing, perhaps through a mask, is a gift from him. Your being is a gift from him. Surely then you would want to worship him out of gratitude. Surely gratitude is the most natural way to relate to this God. Obedience, gratitude. There is even one more motive that lies deeper, runs even deeper than obedience or gratitude. This is how one Jewish rabbi puts it, and I quote, Love. The idea that a human being ought to actually feel love towards the divine is perhaps the great innovation of monotheism. Take a look at the Shema, the basic credo of the faith of Israel. First come the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That sentence appeals to the mind. It expresses acceptance of an idea, belief in the one God. Now look at the very next words and you will find that they address not the mind, but the heart. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. The Torah is clear about this. The most direct corollary of monotheism is love. And rightfully so. If I really have a creator, then my life is not just the byproduct of cold chance. Someone wants me to be here, brought me into this world and gave me the wherewithal to make something of myself here on earth. Love seems an entirely fitting response to that. What this rabbi sees in the Old Testament and is moving towards, even if he doesn't quite get there, what he's moving towards, the New Testament says like this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What the rabbi sees in part in his creator, we see in fullness in our redeemer. Here it is again. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If the calculus of paganism is fear, the calculus of Christianity is love. It's a whole other operating system. The calculus of Christianity is love. And it shouldn't surprise us because in 1 John 4 verse 8 we read, God is love. The reason to worship him 
is that he is love in himself, in his essence. He is love. And he loves you. He loved you enough to give you his life. Let me say that again. He loved you enough to give you your life. And he loved you enough to give his own life for you. That's what the cross of Christ is. That's the beating heart of worship. And it is a million miles from religion that runs off of fear. The question is, why do you worship God? If your reason has been the calculus of fear, manipulation, you have better reasons because you have a better God. You have a God who needs nothing, knows no rivals, whose favor can't be bought, he cannot be bribed, but instead he gives you everything freely. It's a free gift, including his own self in his son, his own flesh and blood, his firstborn, so that you can worship him freely out of love because he loved you first. Because he is love in himself. That's a motive, if ever there was one. And if we're honest, if we're clear in our thinking, that is the only motive that will sustain true worship. We'll think more about that in a moment. But now, we have the background in place. We have the background. Everything we've said about the calculus of fear and the calculus of love now we're ready to go back to our story and try and figure out what Moses was saying. You remember in verse 1, he is direct and he, present, he presents the Creator God as he is. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Loosely translated, the Creator of the universe the God who has revealed himself to Israel wants to celebrate with his people. Now that idea, the idea of a creator God who actually delights in his people and wants to celebrate with them would make absolutely no sense to Pharaoh whatsoever. And so he responds as any pagan would. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to let Israel go. Moses immediately picks up on this worldview gap. It would have been obvious to him. And so he tries to put the request in terms that Pharaoh will actually understand. Verse 3, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. It's the calculus of fear. Loosely translated, the God with power over the Hebrews has met with us. He wants us to sacrifice as any God would. And if we don't, he will punish us as any God would. Because that's how the calculus of fear works. Now, of course, Pharaoh understands perfectly. 
Being a God himself, he understands. He knows what he's looking at. And what he's looking at is a rival claim to his power, to his sphere of control. And so he responds as any self-respecting pagan God would. This means war. It's a classic battle of the gods. Pharaoh flexes his muscles and punishes those who will not worship him. He doubles their labor. He increases their burden. Why? Because they are breaking the terms of the contract. And the terms of the contract were, you worship me and I'll make sure things are okay. If you don't, bad things are going to happen. It's the calculus of fear. And this all plays out through the rest of chapter 5 until verse 22, where you have Moses himself questioning whether God is who he says he is and whether he will ever deliver the freedom that he's promised. Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. The crisis of slavery continues. By answering Pharaoh's question, remember Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? We learned all about the nature of true worship. The calculus of fear versus the calculus of love. By answering this accusation, you have done evil. This is the accusation Moses lays with the Lord. You have done evil. If we answer this accusation we're going to learn all about the nature of freedom. So we're looking at the nature of true worship, and now we're going to look at the nature of true freedom. The Lord replies to Moses' accusation, Exodus 6 verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Look, he's not going to just let the people go. Watch what I'm going to do. He will drive them out. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. How is the Lord going to show Moses and Pharaoh and Israel and Egypt and through Egypt the whole world that he is the one creator God? How is he going to show them? through the events of the Exodus. Remember this statement, the, the Lord's statement of intent, comes just before the ten plagues. In the ten plagues, God will exercise his power over ten different domains that are supposed to be occupied by other gods, the gods of Egypt. Each one of those domains has an Egyptian god resident. But the Lord will do so he will exercise his power with such force and such precision that there will be no doubt to his claim that he is more than just another power god amongst many power gods. There will be absolutely no doubt. He will prove himself to be the sovereign creator of the entire universe who rules it all. And if you stop to think about it, the fact that there are ten plagues means more than just power. It also means love. Because each plague is an act of grace. Each plague is an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, to come to his senses, to turn back before the next plague. 
more on that next week. For now, I think we can begin to see why God waited for the Exodus to reveal his name. Because in the Exodus, the claims of that name would be demonstrated for all the world to see. How? Look at Exodus chapter 6 verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenants. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We might stop at this point and say, Hallelujah. God is going to give the people their freedom at last. But to say that would be to misunderstand Freedom, true freedom. Remember, that's what we're exploring. Turn back to Exodus chapter 4. We have to jump around to understand this. We have to get the context, the bigger story. Just after the burning bush, the Lord gives Moses his commission. Chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Let my son go. Give my son Israel his freedom. Why? For what purpose? That he may serve me. The word for serve in this verse is the same word used of slavery in Egypt. Throughout the early chapters of Exodus, it's the very same word used for slavery in Egypt. Let me just give you one example from our passage, Exodus 5 verse 16. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Slaves, no straw is given to your slaves, and behold, your slaves are beaten. It's the same word. Worship of God, slavery to Pharaoh, the very same word. We tend to think of freedom as the absence of any constraint. I can be whoever I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. That's freedom. That's how, I, that's how our culture thinks of freedom. That shouldn't be a strange idea to you. I'm sure you've heard it put in, that, in those terms. Freedom is the absence of any constraint on my will. Seems the Israelite thought that Israelites thought that way as well. But what the text is showing us is that freedom does not mean having no master. Freedom means having the right master. And slavery is serving the wrong master. This is where freedom serving the right master, and worship the calculus of love, this is where they intersect. Because we will always use our freedom for some form of worship. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky puts it like this, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. So long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. Freedom and worship intersect 
because we exercise our freedom in worship. We are incurable worshipers. It's who we are as human beings. We will worship. True freedom is the service, the worship of the right master. That's why the Lord does not finish his address to Moses. Remember, he's answering the accusation. He does not finish with freedom from slavery in Exodus 6 verse 6. He goes on to verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Remember the question Pharaoh asked? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The Lord himself gives the answer in these verses. Five times in chapter 6 alone, he says, I am the Lord. You want to know who the Lord is? I am the Lord. I will deliver my people from the slavery of false worship into the freedom of worshiping me. I will be their God. They will be my people. And in that worship is the freedom we all desire. The inheritance of a land you can call your own. Home. Home. Homecoming. The abundant blessings of that land. It's milk. It's honey. All of that bound up in the blessing of friendship with the Creator God. Freely given. Not coerced. Not leveraged. Given out of love. So that your service of him is an act of worship, freely given, out of nothing but love. God is promising true freedom in true worship, nothing less. And yet look at how the Israelites respond. Chapter 6 verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Are we any different? Because of our slavery to sin, we struggle to see freedom for what it truly is. Listen to how one Christian describes our slavery. This is what he writes. Our generation is confused as to the nature of true freedom. No matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations, and oppression, we still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. We get free from boredom and fall into slavery to distraction. We pursue liberty from pro prohibitions and fall into bondage to addictions. We escape repression and become enslaved to lust. We are released from isolation and fall captive to peer pressure and the power of the online mob. We pursue liberty from constraints upon our natures and fall into bondage of our untrained passions. If we were to translate that into the language of Exodus, what he's saying is that five minutes after we are free from Pharaoh, we will be enslaving ourselves 
to the golden calf unless we find a true object of worship. And the message of our passage, the answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him, is that the Lord is the only true object of worship. And he is the only place to find the freedom that you and I are so desperately searching for. But the message of Exodus 6 verse 9 and the rest of the book and the rest of the Old Testament is that Israel were never capable of true worship and so they never found true freedom. And that is why the words of John 8.36 ring so true for us. This is what it says. It's only if the Son sets us free that we will be free indeed, truly free. It is only if the Son sets us free that we will find true freedom. Why is that? Why does it take Jesus? Because Jesus was the only one capable of exercising true freedom in perfect love for his Father, in perfect loving adoration and obedience for his Father. He was the only one. And because Jesus' deliverance at the cross is the only thing that can set us free from our deepest slavery to the God of self. Because it is only by his spirit living in us and filling our hearts with the fullness of God's love for us that we are brought to life and able to respond in the worship of loving obedience to our Father. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. We are dead in our false worship. It is only by the Spirit of God filling our hearts with the fullness of God's love for us that we are set free. Of course, the dark side of this wonderful truth is this. No Jesus, no freedom. Nothing but the cruel, bitter, hard, lonely, empty labor of slavery to false gods. Nothing but the calculus of fear. Jesus is offering us the calculus of love. It is the one true God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit who empowers true worship and is inviting you into true freedom this morning. Let's worship him now together in prayer. Father, we worship you. You made us. You remade us in Jesus. You love us. But we are an idolatrous people. We constantly look for other gods to worship. By the power of your spirit, by the blood of your son, turn our hearts back to you. Fill our hearts with your love. Draw us with the bonds of your love, the costly love of the cross. Make us into your people. 
Show us the life of true freedom in true worship. Show us yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been good to be with you, even if it is like this in this strange way. Uh, Folks, God willing, as I said, we will be back together in flesh and blood next week. Please um, watch out for the newsletter, watch out for communication from the church. Uh, We'll keep you posted this week, and, and hopefully, God willing, we'll be able to confirm that we're gathering again next Sunday. Until then, God bless you all. We hope to be back in Exodus next week. It's the 10 plagues, if I'm not mistaken. So that promises to be a doozy. God bless you all. Have a good week. And uh, we'll see you next week.